0: Uh, do you remember back to school when you had to do creative writing and uh, in my day it was just called writing a story but no, it's a narrative uh, when, when you guys have been doing it and uh, as you all know every narrative has three parts, it doesn't matter whether it's a novel or a short story or a movie or even a joke, there has to be an orientation, there has to be a complication and there has to be, most importantly, a resolution, doesn't there? The orientation gives you the the who, when, what, and where, what the story's all about. Uh, And it's the complication that brings in some sort of tension. It might be a problem to be solved, a a difficulty to be overcome. If there's no complication, it's not really a narrative, it's just a description. I did this, and then I did this, and then I did this. It's all quite boring. Uh, That's the complication. Uh, The third part of the narrative is the bit we're interested in tonight, the resolution. It's not just an ending, it's a solution. It's an answer. And we all love a good resolution. We love it when there's justice against the guilty. We love it when the guy gets the girl. We love it when the hero finds the treasure or the innocent child escapes. Uh, in fact, as Daniel's explained or described, we get incredibly frustrated if there's no resolution or if there's an unsatisfying one. Often happens in a TV series in that final episode of the season, doesn't it? It's the cliffhanger. Uh, or perhaps the end of the first part of a movie trilogy. You know, perhaps there's a, a car crash and we don't know whether the heroes survived or not. Uh, it's like Lord of the Rings. Uh, Part one finishes and the heroes are halfway to Mordor, the bad guys are winning and the ring hasn't been destroyed yet. Uh, My friend Amy saw the movie when it first came out. She didn't realise it was only part one. At the end of the movie she walked out and she said, exploded, what sort of ending's that? Well, it's not an ending of course. Uh, It's not the end of the narrative. It's simply another complication and the producers want to make sure that you come back and watch part two or you come back next season to watch the new series. It's like we have this inbuilt desire for resolution, a hunger for a good ending. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, gave a famous lecture called On Fairy Stories. And he talked about how the very best stories all finish with a good resolution. A happy ending where everything turns out right. In fact, he suggested it was built into human nature uh, that we seek that resolution. We enjoy it. We're satisfied by it, uh, especially in life, but even when it's just a story. We want that resolution. And as we come to the end of 1 Samuel today, we get that same sort of feeling. We want a resolution. And what we'll see is there there are some things that are resolved but others are left hanging. In fact, rather than there just being one cliffhanger ending, there's actually four cliffhanger endings in these last five chapters of 1 Samuel. In these last chapters, the focus moves from David that we just read to Saul and back to David and then finally to Saul. And at each point, at each turning point, there's a complication and suspense but no resolution. Uh, Instead the scene changes to the other character. Uh, We have this series of cliffhangers and and I think the whole point is we're meant to be comparing David, the one on the up, to Saul, the one who's on the way out. And even when we get to the end of 1 Samuel, there's no real resolution and we're left with another cliffhanger and we're unsatisfied. Uh, But more on that later... Uh, We began with chapter 27 and things are sounding quite familiar. David's running from Saul. Uh, It seems like that's what half the book has been about. Uh, He heads back to the Philistines. He must be pretty desperate because he goes to Gath, which is where Goliath is from. Uh, He thinks that Saul will stop hunting him there. And he's right. Verse 4, we read, David and 600 of his men go to Gath. When Saul hears, he stops searching for him. David goes to Akish and he asks for a town to live in. Uh, He hides his true uh, intentions with humility, verse 5. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? Uh, In other words, I'm not worthy to live here in the capital city. Just give me some grubby little backwater village and I'll be happy. And so Akish gives him Ziklag, which is some distance away. It's near the border of Israel. And that's where we see what David's plan is. Verse 8, uh, David and his men, they raid the Geshurites, the Gerzites and the Amalekites. Each of them is Israel's enemy uh, and it's pretty much what you'd expect a king to be doing, to be raiding, to be uh, destroying Israel's enemies. And then uh, Akish would ask him when he, when he uh, met up with him, verse 10, where David had gone raiding, Uh, David would say, well, against Judah or against another Israelite outpost. And so, verse 12, Akish thinks that David has completely swapped sides. He'll be my servant forever. Uh, David is being sneaky to keep Akish on side so the families of his men can live in safety from Saul. But he's playing a dangerous game. And that's what we see when chapter 28 begins. Uh, The Philistines gather again to fight Israel and Akish decides to call in the favours. You owe me, buddy. He says, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. Well, now David's in a difficult position. If he says no, Akish will realise that he's not really an ally after all. But if he says yes, he'll end up fighting his own people. And So David gives the the tricky answer in verse 2 then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Now that could mean, I'll show you how loyal I am when I fight for you, but we know that it probably means, I'll show you how I'm still loyal for Israel when I fight for them. And there's the cliffhanger. We don't know how things are going to turn out for David. And straight away, 28 verse 3, the action shifts to Saul. And we get this important piece of information by way of an orientation, Samuel is dead. Verse 5, Saul sees the Philistine army, he's terrified. He can't go to God, God's abandoned him. He seeks his guidance but there's no answer and so in desperation he seeks out a medium, a a witch, uh, someone who talks to the dead. Uh, They find one in Endor, Saul disguises himself, travels there at night. The woman asks who she's to bring back, bring up Samuel, he said. The woman sees Samuel, then realises Saul is the one who's asking. What do you see, says Saul? Verse 14, she describes an old man wearing a robe. And Saul knows that it's really Samuel. Uh, That robe was what Samuel had been wearing the last time Saul saw him. Way back in chapter 15, Samuel had rebuked him for disobeying God and he walked away, Saul grabbed hold of his robe and ripped it. Uh, And Samuel said to him, so the Lord has torn the kingdom from you and given it to someone else. Uh, And we're told that Samuel never saw Saul again. And so here with the witch, when Saul hears about the robe, a symbol of his failure and Samuel's rejection of him, he falls down with his face to the ground. Uh, Verse 15, Samuel is somewhat understandably a little bit grumpy that he's been woken up from his eternal rest or brought back and he says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul has a little whinge about how desperate he is and there's no one to guide him. Uh, And Samuel says, well, it's a bit late for that. Verse 17, the Lord has done what he predicted. He's torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to David. Uh, do you want some guidance? Well here it is, verse 19, Samuel says the Lord will hand you and Israel to the Philistines and by tomorrow you and your sons will join me in the grave. Uh, Samuel still hasn't learned any new skills in breaking bad news gently, I don't think. Uh, Samuel, uh, Saul seems to have stood up again during Samuel's speech because verse 20 he falls down again. Uh, He's filled with fear, his strength is all gone. Well, the mediums had just about enough of all of Saul's hysterics and uh, she says, verse 22, let me give you some food so you can be strengthened and go on your way. Just get out of my hair. Uh, The servants agree. Saul drags himself off the floor onto the couch uh, and he waits while the, the woman kills a calf, prepares it, cooks it, bakes some bread. That's an amazing meal. It's a meal fit for a king. Uh, except Saul isn't a man who's fit to be a king. Perhaps it's the condemned man's last meal. Uh, He eats, he goes out into the night and leaves. Uh, That's cliffhanger number two. Uh, We know what's going to happen. We're just waiting for the hammer to fall on Saul. Uh, And the action returns to David, chapter 29. Uh, He's in this difficult position of heading into battle with the Philistines. Uh, to fight against his own people. But the other commanders are not comfortable that David's soldiers are bringing up the rear and they're they're worried about uh, being attacked from both sides. Uh, Akish passes on the news and we expect that David's going to be pleased. Oh, phew, I got out of that one. But he seems to be disappointed. Uh, Verse 8, but what have I done? What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight? against the enemies of my Lord the King. Now, in Achish's ears, that sounds like David really wants to fight for him. Uh, But just like David's previous comment, it's got two meanings. Uh, Especially when we realise that all the way through 1 Samuel, whenever David says, my Lord the King, he means Saul. And so we can see, as the reader, what David's real plans are. Just what the commanders, the other commanders had been scared of. Uh, Once the battle started, his plan was to turn and fight against the Philistines rather than with them. And so David and his troops get sent home to Ziklag. Uh, And into chapter 30, here's the complication. They get back to Ziklag to find that the Amalekites have raided it and carried off everything, uh, their families and animals. It was the Amalekites who David had attacked back in chapter 27, so this is probably retaliation. And it's the Amalekites Saul should have totally destroyed way back in chapter 15, but didn't. So maybe David is going to finish what Saul started. But that's not the end of the comparison. Uh, Verse 4, we read that David and his men wept aloud and had no strength left to weep. Which reminds us of Saul. Uh, When Saul finds out the news from Samuel, he has no strength either and he has to find strength from the witch's meal. Uh, But look at what verse 6 says, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters, but David found strength in the Lord his God. God is with him, unlike Saul. Uh, And then instead of looking for guidance from a medium, and the spirit of a dead prophet, look at what David does. Uh, David said to Abiathar the priest, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Pursue them, God answered, you will certainly overtake them and succeed. David finds strength in God, he receives guidance from God, We're, we're getting this positive comparison with Saul. So now David and his men, after three days riding from uh, to arrive at Ziklag, set off once again to rescue their families. Uh, they come to a particularly difficult valley crossing and 200 of his men are so exhausted that they can't go any further. So they're left behind to watch the supplies. Uh, the, the remainder of the party continues and they meet another exhausted person. They feed him, they strengthen him and he leads them to the Amalekite camp. Uh, They're all lying around, partying. Uh, David and his men attack, and by the end of the next day, they've nearly wiped them out. And then we get the summary in verse 18. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they'd taken. David brought everything back. It's a complete success as an operation. David is an amazing warrior, but what sort of king will he be? Verse 21, uh, they arrive back to the, to the uh, 200, 200 men who were too exhausted to chase and some of the troublemakers who did do the fighting decide they don't want to share. But David wisely says, verse 23, No, my brothers, we must not do that uh, with what the Lord has given us. Do you see what he's saying? It's not you that have got it. God has given you the victory. He's protected us and handed over to us the forces that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. God's the one that gave the victory. David made this a statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. And then when they do make it back to Ziklag and they settle in again, he he decides to distribute more of that plunder to some of the leaders in Israel, probably the towns who had helped to look after him when he'd been running away from Saul. And so what we get here is this little cameo, this little picture of David, the king, who, who gives, who distributes. And we think back to Saul as the king who takes. Uh, a king just like the nations who will take men and women and horses and taxes. Uh, so we're getting this little hint that David may just be a different sort of king to Saul. And that's where we finish with David. In a sense it's, a, it's another cliffhanger. In, in some senses there's a resolution but he's still not king. He's been promised the, the kingdom but he's not there yet. In fact, he's not even in Israel, he's in, in Ziklag. Uh, it'll, we'll have to wait till 2 Samuel to find out the story of him becoming king. But there's still one final uh, story to be resolved, isn't there? Uh, chapter 31, the story shifts back to Saul. And while we've wandered through four chapters full of interesting details about food and characters and geography, chapter 31 is a real summary it', it only gives us the barest of details. Israel and Philistia fight. Israel flees. Saul's sons are killed, including Jonathan. It's almost tragic the way Jonathan is overlooked. His death comes in such a a summary form. Uh, Saul is critically wounded. He commands his armour bearer to finish him off. He refuses. Saul falls on his sword and dies. The next day the Philistines strip his body, cut off his head and send messages of victory around the country and they hang his body from the wall of Beth-shan. Verse 11, the people of uh, Jabesh-gilead hear about it. They travel to Beth-shan at night, they take down the bodies of Saul and his sons and then they bury them under a tamarisk tree in Jabesh-gilead and then they fast for seven days as a sign of mourning and respect. And that's the end of 1 Samuel. So, what sort of resolution do we finish with? Well, in the end, it's not really a resolution, is it? Uh, we're still hungry for an ending. Rather than an answer, all we know is that Saul is not the answer. And I wonder if that last scene affects our response to Saul. Yes, he was evil. Yes, he was disobedient. Yes, he was fearful. Yes, he would have killed David in a heartbeat. But I can't help feeling a little bit sorry for Saul. Uh, Jabesh Gilead was his first, his greatest success. Uh, it was, the, it was a, what could have been, really. Uh, Jabesh Gilead was attacked. They sent out a cry for help. Saul heard the Spirit of God came on him and he burned with anger. He cut up his oxen and sent the pieces throughout Israel with a message This is what will be done uh, to the man who does not follow Saul and Samuel and the people unite behind him and he won a great victory and he delivered the people of Jabesh and they hadn't forgotten. That's what Saul's reign could have been like, should have been like, but ultimately wasn't. And so in the end he's just a shadow of what a king should be a king who was supposed to guide and lead his whole nation but couldn't even guide or lead himself. We feel a little sorry for him by the end, sneaking around at night, desperate for guidance but not finding it, no strength to go on, looking for strength in the wrong places, hopeless and helpless, abandoned by God. And maybe that's you, desperate for guidance desperate for strength, don't know where to turn. Uh, Perhaps there's been sinful choices and failures that have left you feeling hopeless. Uh, You've tried everything, nothing's worked. You feel like you've got nothing left to give. Well, if that's you, uh, you can rejoice that your king is not Saul. In fact, you can rejoice that your king isn't David either. Because as we keep reading through 2 Samuel, we don't have to read too far to find out that David himself is not even the solution. Uh, He's not the resolution that we need. If you are without strength and without hope, then you can rejoice that our King is Jesus. Jesus who gives clear guidance uh, to all all who uh, need to know that guidance. So that we never have to be like Saul, who, who is abandoned and helpless. Jesus is God's final and his ultimate communication. Think about how Hebrews 1 describes Jesus. In the past God spoke to our forefathers through prophets many times and in various ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Uh, that's our king, the one who guides. As Jesus spoke those words of guidance to the disciples, many of them found them, them difficult to follow and, and they deserted him. Uh, and in John 6, Jesus says, uh, said to the disciples, are you going to go as well? And Peter replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's Jesus, the king who guides to eternal life when we're lost and hopeless. He's the king who gives strength when we're feeling weak. Matthew 11:28. He says, "Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest." Take my yoke upon you and learn from me from gentle and humble in heart you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light Now if you're feeling like Saul then Jesus is the king you need the one to guide and the one to strengthen Jesus is the resolution for all your complications now, Interestingly that's what Tolkien says in his essay on fairy stories He says a good ending, a resolution brings joy. And he says that's what we find in Jesus. He called Jesus' incarnation, coming from heaven to earth, he called that the good ending to the whole story of man's history. And then he looked at Jesus' life and he said the story of Jesus' life uh, has the resurrection as the good ending for the story of the incarnation. And as we experience the resurrection and the incarnation of Jesus, uh, then like all good stories, that brings us joy. Uh, Because we don't just observe it, we don't just read it, we begin to live it. Uh, We begin to live Jesus living in us, Jesus raising us to new life. Come to me, says Jesus. If you're weary, I'll give you rest. If you're lost, I'll guide you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these stories over the last number of weeks about Samuel and Saul and David. We thank you as we look at them, we we see shadows of Jesus, our great King, uh, the one who guides us when we're lost, who strengthens us when we're weak. Uh, Jesus, you are the King that we need. Uh, We pray that you will help us to see you clearly and to love you and to follow you. Amen.